One of the things that often surprises me as a minister is just how many people in the community appreciate being prayed for. In fact, I've discovered this fact so many times, it really should not surprise me anymore. Take this last week, for instance. On Monday, I had a Zoom call with a couple who want to get married on an Isla beach next spring. She has a faith and wants some Christian content at her wedding. He is rather more agnostic. And in the conversation, I was trying to drill down on why they wanted me to conduct the service. And to my surprise, it was the future husband that hit the nail on the head. We would like you to pray for us, he said. Now, he might not be sure about what he thinks about Jesus or the scriptures, but if someone is willing to pray for him, he will take it. Then on Wednesday, I was at the opening of the Lockendall Way, the new path on Isla. Now, I had nothing at all to do with the creation of that path, and the committee that organised it is certainly not a religious one. So why did they want me to attend? They wanted me to pray. In fact, they were so grateful for what I prayed for, they asked for a copy of my prayer afterwards so they could put it in their records. And then yesterday, I was conducting a funeral, not in a church, but in a distillery. From what I could make out, the deceased and his family were not at all anti-church, but their faith was fairly nominal. And again, at a meeting during the week, I found myself sitting there trying to ascertain what they wanted from me in the service. And again, the answer was the same. They wanted me to pray. They wanted me to ask God to help them in their grief. Now the danger, of course, in a community like Isla is that the locals think that I, as a minister, have a special direct line to God. Some holy hotline that they don't have access to. Say a little prayer for me is often a request made at the end of a conversation. And of course that's nonsense. I have no difference to any other human being I can only speak to God because in his mercy he gives us all that gift. But in the eyes of many, I represent something. I represent the people of faith and the God that we believe in. And when people are really in need, they will throw themselves on our God, even though they spend the rest of their lives ignoring him. I'm sure that all of you will have experienced something similar because people on Isla know that you go to church as well. Despite how far our nation has drifted away from the word of God, prayer is an instinct that is still deeply ingrained in our hearts. God has made us to be this way. He has made us with this built-in need for him. And for that reason, many more people are open to prayer than we often imagine. I hope that introduction is helpful for us as we now dive into today's passage. For this passage is one long prayer. In fact, rather strangely, this prayer is one long prayer about prayer. Solomon is conversing with God about how prayer works. And he is laying out one particular request. Solomon has just spent seven years building the temple. 
He's then furnished the temple so that every object within it speaks of God. And in Solomon's mind, he wanted the architecture and the furniture to represent God to all the pilgrims who came into contact with the building. So much so, Solomon believes that in the days ahead, people will turn towards the temple and pray, believing that their requests will reach the God that the building speaks of. In a very small way, it's a bit like asking a minister or a regular churchgoer to pray on your behalf. Now, this prayer that Solomon really did pray on the occasion of the temple's opening has been recorded in the Bible for a reason. To this day, it serves to instruct us on what we can pray about, what we can ask God for and expect God to answer. Now, admittedly, we as Christians approach prayer slightly differently to the Jews of the ancient Near East. We don't turn and direct our prayers towards Solomon's building, do we? Rather, we direct them towards the fulfilment of that building, the temple that is our Lord Jesus Christ. It is to Jesus, the person, the God-man, that we direct our prayers and to him alone. But having said that, I think that we'll still find that this prayer of Solomon's is a great one. One of great beauty and great inspiration. And there are many lessons for us to learn here. And for this sermon, I want to draw out five short things on prayer from this passage. And to help us to remember them, they all begin with the letter P. The first thing I'd like us to see is the connection between prayer and promise. Listen again to how Solomon begins in verses 23 and 24. Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it. Solomon has confidence to pray to God because first and foremost, God keeps his promises. Our God is a faithful God. God is not fickle or arbitrary. He's not making things up as he goes along. God is constant. He has a plan for his world and a purpose for his people and he will not move from it. And what this means is that Solomon can even call upon God to remember those promises that he has already made and to start acting accordingly. Listen again to how Solomon continues in verse 25. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. It's quite amazing, isn't it? It almost sounds as though Solomon is trying to twist God's arm behind his back to hold him over a barrel of some sorts. But that is not the case. God had always made clear that his promises would stand if his people were careful to obey his word. And Solomon is simply placing all of his trust in what he knows of God's character. God is faithful 
By nature, he cannot be anything else. And for this reason, we have hope. Solomon had witnessed God keep his promises through the way that the temple was finished. We have witnessed how God keeps his promises by sending his son Jesus, the great successor to King David that was spoken of in those verses. And still today, our ongoing confidence in prayer is rooted in promises that God has made us. Promises such as these from the mouth of Jesus. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, he said. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. So whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Prayer works because God has promised that it will work. God is worth praying to because we know he is faithful and will always do what is good and right. So this connection between prayer and promise is a really important one. The second thing that I'd like us to see from this passage is the connection between prayer and presence. In fact, prayer only ever works, both then and now, because God is personally present with us to hear it. Listen again to verses 28 and 29. Give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence This day, may your eyes be open to this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you'll hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. The most amazing thing about the temple that Solomon built was that God really did take up residence there. And we read about that in our passage last week. God's presence came into the temple as a cloud of glory. Now that is not to say that God was now confined to the temple, that in Solomon's day he was present in Jerusalem and nowhere else. No, not at all. In verse 27, Solomon explicitly explains that even the highest heavens cannot contain God, let alone a building made of stone. But for that period of history, God graciously decided to make himself available to the cause of his people by taking up residence right in the heart of the city. And this is why Solomon foresaw the people turning towards the temple to pray. They were trying to turn towards the place where God literally was. Today things are different, but the great truth of God's presence is still the same. After the temple, God became present on earth through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus was the new temple, the place where God was, the place where the sacrifice for sin was offered. And after his death, when Jesus rose again and ascended back to heaven, he took this one step further. God's presence was now to be with all believers. God is with us through the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent. We as individuals... And we as a church together are now the temple of God. In a real way then, when people turn to us 
and ask us to pray on their behalf, they are turning to the temple of God, just as they did in Solomon's day. Now, of course, they do that without understanding that at all. But because God really is present in our lives, the prayers work. Prayer works because when we pray, God is personally present with us by his Holy Spirit. He hears our prayer. He sees our heart. He shares our pain personally. Prayer is powerful because it harnesses the very real presence of God. So far, we've only covered the introduction to Solomon's prayer. He's stated his faith in the promises of God and he's called upon God's personal presence. But as yet, we don't know what he's praying for. Now we're going to find out. Solomon's prayer to God is simply him asking God to hear all the other prayers that people will make when they turn towards the temple. Now there are many different types of prayer that Solomon envisages that people will pray. Some will pray for justice. Some will pray for rescue. Some will pray for provision. But there is one thing that Solomon realises will be prayed for more than anything else. Down through the years, the people will turn towards God and seek mercy. The third thing that I would like us to see in this passage is the connection between prayer and plea. The word plea comes again and again and again through this prayer. Have a look. Verse 28, verse 38, verse 45, verse 47, verse 49, verse 52. The word plea appears. Solomon really does expect that again and again, people are going to need to ask God to restore them from the consequences of their sin. Be they personal difficulty or natural disaster or even the whole nation being judged and taken into exile. On these occasions, desperate people will turn to the Lord and plead for forgiveness and help. Let us think about that word plea for a moment. The word plea is taken from the language of a law court. People stand before a judge and plead their case. In the ancient Near East, people would come before the king and plead for him to pardon them as his subjects. But the Bible makes it clear that we don't deserve this pardon at all. Listen again to the case studies that Solomon offers up to the Lord in his prayer. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you and when they turn back to you, hear from heaven and forgive. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you and when they pray towards this place, hear from heaven and forgive. And perhaps most explicitly, When the people sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies, if they have a change of heart and they repent and they plead with you, then hear their prayer, uphold their cause, forgive them, and cause their captors to show them mercy. 
Prayer doesn't work because we deserve it to. In fact, as wrongdoers, we have no rights at all. We cannot plead for justice. We can only plead for mercy. We are not equal to God. We have no excuses before God. And we must always recognize that difference in power and righteousness. When we pray, what we're really doing is pleading. And when we plead, we do that because God has already promised to be gracious in response. In the New Testament, this is still the same. Remember these words from 1 John 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from unrighteousness. There's one final thing to note on this connection between prayer and plea. Did you notice Solomon's posture while he prayed? Verse 54 tells us that he was on his knees with his hands outstretched towards heaven. As Solomon prayed, asking God to be merciful to his people, he pleaded with palms open. His very posture spoke of his and the people's emptiness and their need for God to fill. If even King Solomon had to approach God in that way, then so do we. Prayer is a gift from God, but let's always remember that gift is to be used in the form of a plea, not through a demand that we have no rights to make. So we now know the key request of Solomon's prayer. He wants God to hear the prayers of his people, not just in his day, but for many years to come. And when they turn towards the temple, the place of God's presence, and plead for mercy, he wants God to remember his promises to them and come through for what they need. The fourth point that I would like to then make is very simple. It's the connection between prayer and people. All different sorts of people. Sometimes in this prayer, Solomon prays for individuals. At other times, he prays for communities. At other times, he prays for whole nations. In verse 31 to 33, he prays that an individual will get justice when they have been oppressed and they turn to the Lord and ask for it. In verse 37, he prays that a whole region might be spared from natural disaster. Sometimes in this prayer, Solomon prays for locals, the people of Israel, the people God had called from Egypt and named as his own. At other points, Solomon is praying for foreigners, for aliens, for asylum seekers, if you will. In verses 41 to 43, he prays that these people of other nations will be brought to faith when they experience God answer the prayers that they have prayed towards his temple. What I would like us to see from this is that there really is no limit to the people that we can pray for. All the people in this world need mercy. All people in this world need God. And we can pray for just one or two, or we can pray for vast numbers. God is just as interested either way. We can pray for people who we know and love personally. We can pray for those people who we have never met. And we can pray for those people who have even hurt us in the past. Remember, even Jesus encouraged us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. 
There really is no limit to who can be prayed for. Because all people are made in the image of God. All people matter and are loved by God. And therefore all people can be prayed for. So we've made the link between prayer and promise, prayer and presence, prayer and plea, and prayer and people. There's one final thing to say. We need to see the link between prayer and praise. After Solomon has finished asking God to hear the prayers that people prayed towards the temple, he wraps everything up in worship. From verse 56 onwards, he launches into words of praise. He praises God again for keeping his promises. He praises God for the way he's rescued his people, protected and provided for them down through the years. He praises God for the gift of prayer. To make things really clear, in verse 60, Solomon reiterates that he wants God to hear the prayers of foreigners so their lives will be changed and they will go on to give him praise as well. In the end, Solomon turns everything round to give glory to God. In verses 62 to 66, which come just after the section we read, we can see how Solomon's exuberant praise went on for 14 days. Many sacrifices were offered in that time. And when things finally did come to an end, the people were entreated to go on praising God as they went home. Prayer and praise really go together. They must go together. Yes, in desperate times, we can cut to the chase and plead with God to help us. But for the majority of the time, we must remember that our prayers are not to be just shopping lists of requests. Because prayer is a gift from God and God is worthy of praise. So let's give God the praise that he is due for who he is and what he has done. Even Jesus, when he taught us to pray, began in praise. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The ongoing connection between prayer and praise is really important. So there we have it. We've reached the end of Solomon's prayer. The prayer that he prayed to dedicate the temple of God. In many ways, it's a prayer about prayer. And for that reason, there's much that we can learn from it. We have seen that prayer draws on the promises of God. Prayer works because of the presence of God. Prayer is a plea for mercy, not a pretentious demand. Prayer can be for all people, no matter who they are and what they've done. And prayer should often start and end in praise. Yes, prayer is a mystery, but it's an amazing privilege. And as we thought at the beginning, even the most apathetic in our community know they need to pray at times. So let us commit to being God's people of prayer on Isla. And may the Lord Jesus grant us and our community his mercy.